We're continuing our three-week series here on Advent, looking at Luke chapter 2. We looked at verses 1 through 7 last week, which is really just an emphasis upon Christ's humble birth, his um, sovereign sovereignty over history, and the fulfillment of the promises uh, that we read about in the Old Testament. Today we'll pick up where we left off at verse 8 and we'll read through to verse 20. But I just finished an excellent book called 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. Kind of an obvious title. Right? Uh, it's by Tony Reinke. I think he, he wrote it in 2017. Um, but he, he begins his conclusion to the book in this familiar way where, or the following way with a familiar routine. See if any of this sounds uh, familiar to you. He says, today, tired after work, I opened Facebook on my phone looking for a diversion. I flicked past a video of a cat that sounds like a crying child. Then I saw a new study about gun control. Then I saw an innovative new keyboard for tablets. Then I read a story from the latest celebrity gossip Then I was offered 20 pictures of actors who have aged badly, which I ignored. Then I saw a breaking news story about a rogue militia group in Oregon. Then I read that North Korea apparently had detonated a test atomic bomb. Then I watched a viral video of a monster shredder that crushes refrigerators, couches, and cars with large metal teeth. And then I saw pictures of a friend and his wife on vacation in Iceland. On and on, I flicked down a list of disconnected and fragmented items, and most of them only barely important or interesting. I was not edified or served, only further fatigued because of missing a nap I should have taken or a walk I could have taken and easily lured back to my phone for more. You can replace Facebook with Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest, Choose your poison. Right? He, he illustrates the frustration of the, the nature of distractions with a reference from the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. The senior demon, screw tape, is teaching his nephew Wormwood about the goal of distracting his patient, a Christian. And he encourages him, instead of communing with God, Screwtape commends the nothing strategy, which he assures is very strong, strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what and knows not why, in the gratification of curiosities so feeble that the man is only half aware of them, or in the long, dim labyrinth of reveries that have not even lust or ambition to give them a relish, but which once chance association has started them, the creature is too weak and fuddled to shake off. He concludes this letter. This is the 12th letter Screwtape is writing to his nephew Wormwood. He concludes it like this. He says, you will say that these are very small sins, 
And doubtless, like all young tempters, you're anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. And of course, as a demon, he's referring to God as the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts, your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. In other words, according to Lewis and Reinke, one of Satan's chief strategies is to leave us with no time to treasure or ponder, to meditate upon the things of God because we're too busy reflecting on nothing, at least nothing important. So last week we noted that the events surrounding the birth of Christ reveal a sovereign and a humble Messiah who fulfilled the Old Testament promises regarding his birth. This week we'll see several responses to the good news of Christ's birth and, birth, and the, the goal is that we'll be drawn into a higher theology and a deeper doxology and a higher view of God and a deeper praise of him. And so let's ask for his help in understanding that this morning. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for this reminder from a talented writer, C.S. Lewis, who encourages us to reflect upon the ways in which we're so easily distracted by nothing. And if he were writing today, he would only have more fodder to work with as we have been become really addicted to nothing, addicted to endless searching for more. Lord, help us to set aside those thoughts, to not be distracted by them now, but to be completely immersed in your word, to have our hearts arrested by the description that we read here in Luke 2 of the events surrounding immediately preceding or I mean uh, following Christ's birth as we reflect upon the events of the shepherds and the baby in the manger the audience that listens and hears proclamation of the good news Lord may our hearts be freshly moved by this story. And may it transform our hearts, Lord, that we would be encouraged and edified, built up, equipped, and that we might delight and rejoice in our Savior's birth this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Read with me Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And the angels went away from them into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known to the, the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, your first point in your outline is receiving the good news of Christ's birth. Receiving the good news of Christ's birth. We're looking at verses 8 through 14 in this section. The shepherds are prominent characters in Luke's gospel. But it's significant to know something about the way the culture perceived them. Shepherds could not participate in religious rituals because their work oftentimes left them ceremonially unclean. So it wasn't by rule that they were excluded. It wasn't like because of their title shepherd, they could not participate in religious worship. But it was just that the nature of their work left them so dirty and unclean that they couldn't enter into the temple for worship. Due to their reputation of being unreliable witnesses, they were not allowed to give testimony in court. They were untrustworthy. And so it would seem, actually, that only lepers were more despised among the classes in Israel. As we open this section here, it says that in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. And some have... have taken from that um, an indication of where these shepherds were, or at least the the timing of when Christ was born, right? The actual, let me me be clear, because I mentioned something last week as well that um, some of you picked up on when I mentioned that that he was most likely not born in winter. I want to clarify something here. The actual date of Jesus' birth remains unknown. Um, it's, it's always interesting when someone confidently asserts that Christ was born on a specific day, and they have all of their reasons. Um, there are serious proposals, like, you know, essay proposals about the date of Christ's birth, just about reflecting every month of the year. So you have plenty of options to choose from. So you can't be certain about the date, 
But in fact, December 25th does have some traditional references, especially if you consider the combining it with the timing of the angel's appearance to Zechariah in Luke 1. I won't go into that. But there is some historical and traditional references that, that uh, think December 25th was accurate. Some have suggested that because the, the flock was out in the field at night, that would not have happened in the winter. But that's not really true. Uh, James Edwards summarizes the matter well. In general, he says, shepherds spent warmer, drier months between March and November further afield. So further out. And then colder and wetter months between November and March, they were nearer to towns and cities. So if they were really close to Bethlehem at this point, it could speak to a winter birth of Jesus. On the other hand, a census would more likely be scheduled for the summer months between July and August when harvests were complete. He concludes with this. He says, the dearth of information on the date of Jesus' birth may indicate that New Testament writers themselves did not know when he was born. So we cannot confidently assert a particular season, a particular month, a particular day. That's, that's really not important. It's possible that this was during a warmer time, possible that it was during winter. Right? The, the point is that it's, it's clearly important for us to understand the centrality of Christ during this season. Right? Regardless of how far out in the field they were located, the angel knew precisely with whom to share this news. The shepherds transitioned from a routine night of keeping watch to fearing a great fear. That's how the Greek reads. It's fearing a great fear. As the glory of the Lord shone around them, and the typical response when an angel appears to someone is what we see here. They feared a great fear. It's, it's common. This was not a common experience, but when it does happen in Scripture, this is a common response. And it results in this humbling fear. Why would, why would that be? Consistently bringing people to a state of fear. Scaring them half to death. Well, fear strikes a proper reverence in the recipient. It magnifies the importance of what's about to, what they're about to hear and witness. So there are a series of, of contrasts in this passage, the first of which is the contrast between the darkness of the night and then the light of God's glory that shone around them, represented by this angel. It says an angel appeared, but it's talking about the glory of the Lord that's shining around them. While their initial fear was, was natural and understandable, it's followed by instruction from the angel to fear not, in verse 10. That's not to say that their fear was inappropriate as a correction or a rebuke, but it's to assuage them that, they, that they're about to hear good news of great joy, that they're about to be encouraged. Their fear immediately met with a glorious message of hope. We're all familiar with the best scene from A Charlie Brown Christmas. All right, the three girls are, are chastising Charlie Brown, a very 
common occurrence for him. He picked a pathetic tree, hardly capable of holding any decorations. And so everyone there is laughing at him, including Snoopy. And they all kind of depart the scene, you know, just laughing hysterically. And then Linus comes near with his ever-present blue blankie. And Charlie Brown admits his failure. He says, maybe I don't understand Christmas. And then he shouts in frustration, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? And Linus responds, sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And he walks to the center of the stage. He calls for the lights. And then he quotes Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. And as he gets to this verse, fear not, it's very subtle, but he drops his blanket. Obviously, Charles Schultz was indicating that the message of Christ's birth displaces the fear represented by Linus's security blanket. It's a subtle reminder that that angelic message was had meaning for all of us. It had meaning for him. It has meaning for everyone who hears it. It wasn't just a message for the shepherds. It's everyone who listens by faith, who hears it and responds. And so that message includes three titles. It, it says that this child is a savior, that he is Christ, and that he is Lord. He would deliver God's people from their sins. Thus, he is to be obeyed and honored. He's king of kings and lord of lords. Luke has already used Lord a dozen times prior to this, always in reference to God. And so this is the first time that Lord and Christ are combined to indicate this was no ordinary child. And he was the God-man, the only God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior. And then notice what follows in verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. How should they respond to this announcement? Clearly an important announcement. It's, it's completely rocked their night. How should they respond? Well, here's a sign. They should go and find him. They must find the sign of the manger. It would certainly stand out from the few other newborns possibly in Bethlehem at that time. But just as that first angel completes his message, he's joined by a multitude of heavenly hosts. And so this is the glorious flash mob, right? Outside in stark contrast to a very quiet scene inside where the baby lie in a manger. There's a similar scene in the Old Testament that this always reminds me of, where there's a host of angels referred to in 2 Kings chapter 6. You don't have to turn there, but I will read it. 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 11 through 17. It says, The mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me 
who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, none, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. So Elisha is praying for his servant to be able to see that they have an army, a host, that is vastly, that vastly outnumbers this Syrian army that is now encamped around their city. And the Lord gives him this insight, gives him this ability to see It's as if this same scene has now become a picture for these shepherds, right? That's essentially the scene that they see, a host. It's a military term, a host of angels, multitude of hosts are in the sky. It's an incredible scene. And this angelic choir raises a hymn of praise. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The hymn opens with the giving of glory to God. And then it praises him for the peace that he brings to those favored by God. So the shepherds were illustrating at that moment the very point of this hymn. Those who had done nothing to earn God's favor were receiving it. By grace, they were the recipients of his peace. It's a message for all who place their faith in the Lord. The recipients of God's saving grace are the elect. This is is not a declaration of universal salvation. It says, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace among those who receive his favor. So it's not a declaration of universal salvation, but of sovereign election. The emphasis also is upon God and the peace that he brings. It's not, he doesn't emphasize the shepherds here. The angels don't proclaim the, the blessing that, you know, it doesn't even reference them. It's all about God. And this peace that transcends the peace we talked about last week, the Pax Romana. A peace between God, uh, this was a peace between God and man, not just a, 
earthly kind of peace among nations. And so get the irony there, an army of angels is announcing peace. They're proclaiming peace. The least worthy audience receives this glorious announcement. And this is the lot that God chose to receive the gospel of the incarnation, the good news of Jesus' birth. God revealed the glory of heaven at the climax of history to those who were unworthy. The child was born unto them. They were the privileged recipients of the greatest announcement in history. And so in light of this truth, we know that even the most unlikely and unworthy candidate receives an invitation. The announcement departs the mouths of angels from the realms of glory And it enters the eyes and ears of shepherds from the depths of earth. God favors the humble rather than the self-righteous and the self-sufficient. See, God doesn't intend for us to live in fear, but that our reverence would lead us to become transfixed by the glory of God's revelation. To lower ourselves in light of the creator who offers redemption. This message is for you. Unto you is born a savior who deserves the highest glory. It's a message that transcends everything else. It's a message that we should never allow ourselves to be distracted by anything else. And so receiving the good news of Christ's birth is followed by reactions or reacting to the good news of Christ's birth, verses 15 through 20. Although the, the culture despised the shepherds, they, they always seem to have occupied a privileged status in Scripture. And God refers to himself as a shepherd in Psalm 80, verse 1, Ezekiel 34, 12 through 16. Micah 7, 14, he called the shepherd Moses to lead Israel out of bondage in Egypt. The shepherd boy David was anointed king and promised to always have one from his lineage on the throne, ultimately fulfilled by Christ. That's in Ezekiel 34. I'm going to turn there. Ezekiel 34, verses 23 and 24, because we see this fulfilled in the birth of Christ. And I will set up for them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So again, we see this this theme of God favoring the unworthy, those who are very those who very well may have been in a state of of ceremonial uncleanness that very night are the first to see Christ and offer him praise. When people like them experience something like that, it changes everything. It says they immediately with haste head into the city and look for the sign. 
And so upon beholding the sign, they make known the good news that they had heard. That in verse 17. As soon as they heard the evangel, which is the gospel, as soon as they heard the evangel, they responded with faith and obedience. They saw the child. Once they saw him, they evangelized what they heard. They shared the gospel. This unlikely lot received the privilege of testifying concerning the birth of his son. And this passage concludes with these three different reactions. One is the audience. It's those who heard the shepherds. All who heard it, verse 18, wondered at what the shepherds told them. This audience wondered. Now, this phrase, this idea of wondering, it it happens several times in Luke. In Luke chapter 1, verse 21, And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. They're they're wondering. They're they're not. They're confused by why Zechariah is delayed. Uh, In verse sixty-three, and he asked chapter one, verse sixty-three, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote his name as John. And they all wondered. So it's sort of just an inquiring, sort of wondering. There is some um, also possibilities of translations like amazement. Um, You see other examples in chapter 2, verse 33, chapter 4, verse 22, and then again in chapter 4, verse 28. This word happens frequently here, but but what we see from the context is, or what we want to know, what we're wondering at this point is, did any of them follow up on the news? Did they visit the baby? Did they praise God for sending a Savior? Calvin says, still, though all are astonished, no one moves a step to Christ, from which we may infer that the impression made upon them by hearing of the power of God was unaccompanied by any devout affection of the heart. So we can assume their short-lived response was ambiguous at best, and seems to stand in contrast to Mary's response. But before we get there, think about this. Good news of great joy had just been shared with them. They wondered, and that's where it stopped. The good news of great joy dies in the proud ears of the skeptic. If inquiry and investigation never transition into meditation and praise, then the gospel of the birth of Christ will never be anything more than an intriguing idea or concept at which to wonder. Maybe to reflect upon how it had such an impact upon our history. But nothing more than that. Something to add to your trivia knowledge. But what do we see Mary doing? You understand that it's a contrast here, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Although the shepherds report amazed the people, Mary responds with this deeper reflection and appreciation. She treasured, literally she kept. She kept these things and pondered what she heard. She's meditating upon them in her mind. 
reflecting. The experience of the shepherds compounded with her own miraculous experience. And all of it served to strengthen her theology, to give her a higher view of God and his purposes. So the short-lived amazement stands in stark contrast to this heart-treasuring and pondering of Mary. The world hears about a baby in a manger, and its wonder ends there. In fact, they'll write songs about it because those songs sell. And they'll sell trinkets. And they'll change all their decorations, and they'll do everything they can to show you that they care about this but it stops at wondering. If Mary had a lot to treasure and ponder as she looked upon her child, how much more do we have to reflect upon? We know more than she could have possibly understood in God's revelation. We know about the rest of his life, his death, his resurrection, the fact that he's seated at the right hand of God the Father now interceding on our behalf. We certainly can treasure and ponder these things, and we ought to. And then we see the shepherds. He concludes with the shepherds in verse 20, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. They're glorifying and praising God, so their experience concludes with doxology. The gospel never settles in the humble heart. It deepens our study and it magnifies our praise. It's not something we tire of hearing about. It's not something that's, that can't arrest our hearts out of a distracting, endless infinity pool online. The goal is not to let the wonder fade. And to know that your thrilling encounters with God are not only in the past, but that every day you can open his word, you can reflect upon him. You can treasure and ponder this scene of the glory of God in the birth of the Savior born unto you. We shouldn't romanticize the shepherds. They had a, a reputation for a reason. And it reminds us that sin makes all of us unworthy. However, your sense of unworthiness is the very thing that brings you to a place where you might see with greater clarity the infinite worth of Christ. That's the goal. All of us have access to the Father through the Son. So think about this. The original audience would have likely listened. Uh, they, they had the opportunity to listen to this story with as much wonder as we do. Hopefully we're still amazed. We're astonished. We're moved freshly by this picture, this scene. As we think about the heavenly choir filling the night sky, it, it's an impressive scene. We should still be moved by the humility of our Lord and Savior. 
But even more important, I hope we treasure this gospel story in our heart, that we still ponder it with fresh insight and excitement, reflecting upon it and sharing it with others. The shepherds witnessed the heavenly choir, then after seeing the Savior in the manger, they joined in. God invites you to join the heavenly choir. You only have access because of a Savior who was born unto you, who lived a perfect life that you could not live, who died the death that you deserved, and then rose again, proving he was who he said he was. And he is who he said he is. And so go in haste to worship him. And I encourage you to do so tonight. Return. Leave your phone at home. Come back at four o'clock and let us worship him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time to reflect upon our Savior's birth to allow these scenes to capture our imaginations again. To think about the sky being lit up with a host of angelic beings singing a hymn of praise to you. Lord, we do recognize that even though we are so hindered by the distance we have, we feel in our flesh, and we're hindered in our minds, we're distracted by many things, and we're hindered by our, our own sinfulness. But Lord, we know that we have an opportunity to, to taste and to see these things every time we gather together and worship you. As we sing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs to one another, may they be edifying and encouraging and build us up. And that as we come back this afternoon for the lessons and carol service, may it be a, a time simply of doing what we see in this passage. Lord, that we would wonder, that we would be astonished, but that it wouldn't end there, or that it wouldn't be so short-lived, but that it would be something we keep in our hearts, something we treasure and ponder. And like the shepherds, that it would turn into praise. And we thank you that we have the privilege of celebrating and praising you. And we pray that you would hear our response of praise even now. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. And live to the body of Christ.
after and ponder these things. So read with me the Ten Commandments. First commandment says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. Hear now the Lord's benediction, and we'll close by singing uh, the gospel song. And this is the Christmas version of it, so if you're not familiar with it, it's there in your bulletin. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen. are dismissed and hear this announcement this is an important one kids there's a game for you that stormy winslow has prepared and she'll need some volunteer parents to help her out uh, but kids get ready to, to go in there and have some fun and there's some muffins in there and coffee so please stick around and join us for all of that <laughs>